Welcome to another episode of the Ask a CISO podcast, powered by Harangi, Asia's leader in cloud security. Every episode, you get insider tips and insights into current challenges and newest trends in cybersecurity from the world's best experts to help level up your cybersecurity career. Here's your host, Paul Hadji, to introduce today's guest. Welcome once again to the Ask a CISO podcast with Harangi Cybersecurity, helping you navigate the rough waters of cybersecurity and get your ship to where it needs to go. I'm Mark Fuentes, the Director of Cyber Operations here at Rangi Cybersecurity, sitting in for the boss man, Paul Haji. And today I have a really, really interesting guest with us, someone who's quite active as well as our other guests are, maybe even more so than our other guests in the cybersecurity community and uh, the SME and startup communities as well. Today I have Stephen Sim. He's a global CISO at a large global logistics MNC. He's president of the Singapore chapter of ISACA. He's also chair of the executive committee at OTISAC here in Singapore. He has over 24 years of experience in the cybersecurity field, in large enterprises, critical infrastructure, doing governance and management work in large operations at local, regional, and global levels. He's led and participated in many programs and initiatives at ISACA, such as mentorship programs. He's also the SME subject matter expert reviewer for the C-Risk Review Manual. He's also the engaged topic leader for risk management at ISACA. He's an adjunct lecturer at NUS Institute of System Sciences. And on top of that, he's authored many articles on the subjects of cybersecurity, risk management, and he takes on many advisory roles throughout the SME and startup scene. Having done all of that, of course, he's been showered with many awards and many honors. Among those, last year, he was the top of the list for IDG CSO 30 ASEAN Awards. He also received the ISACA Outstanding Chapter Leader Achievement Award this year. This year, he also received the Global Cybersecurity Leadership Award, the Editor's Choice by CXO TV. He's also listed by Peerless29 as a highly influential CISO and Singapore Skills Future Fellow and Professional Leaders Finalist in the 2018 Cybersecurity Awards. It's a mouthful. There's a lot going on. So we're really excited to have him. Welcome, welcome, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation with you, Mark. Super honored and excited to have you on. So let's just dive into it. With all of the stuff that you got going on, I mean, you've got a lot of these responsibilities. How do you keep it all in order? Yeah, a lot of the volunteering work, uh, it's time. Uh, I use the time after office hours. Uh, during lunch hours, like what we're doing now, weekends, midnights, and early mornings as well. So it helps also working with a supportive company because working closely with the ecosystem itself does brings value back to my company, right? The enterprise that I'm serving. It helps to test out and provide better clarity to the approaches that I have in mind some of the thoughts that I have and it gives me also supportive evidence to implement and deploy strategies and approaches that I've designed to my company's best benefit. I mean, I noticed you didn't mention sleep in there. <laughs> so but that's, that's <laughs> probably something that's a little bit lacking, right? <laughs> uh, well, but, yeah, you know, I don't sleep a lot. Typically, uh, I mean, many of the folks I know also sleep about four to five hours, so almost six hours, yeah. 
I'm getting older. As I age, I sleep less. I'm noticing that as well as I age as well. And, you know, I had a mentor that told me, hey, we signed up for cybersecurity. That means we didn't sign up for much sleep. So, yeah, definitely feeling it on this side as well. I want to bring the conversation over into CII. As many of our listeners do already know, CII stands for Critical Information Infrastructure. And that's a, you know, it's a big deal in cybersecurity. But, you know, for a lot of our viewers, we just know the surface level um, about mm-hmm. CII. What's actually the deep down, the meat? What do people misunderstand and don't understand about CII? Well, CII, like what you actually pointed out, it's critical information infrastructure. There's used to support critical infrastructure. And really refers to the whole digital infrastructure and cyber physical infrastructure that, that supports the critical services, right? So it often focuses on services that are essential to a nation or a city. And the sectors may vary from nation to nation, dependent on the risk appetite. You cannot run away from utilities, power, water, transport, that are the underbellies of a thriving ecosystem. Folks typically tend to miss out is that these are often supported by their supply chain. And the supply chain itself, even though they are not classified as CIIs, they are equally important because of the dependencies. And we have already seen what has happened over the last couple of years, right? Supply chain related attacks, whether it's SolarWinds and so forth, or Log4j. Therefore, the focus has to go beyond the CII itself, but also the surrounding ecosystem of hardware providers, software providers, as well as service providers, including cloud service providers. So when you talk about, yeah, this is a big thing. Everyone's been dealing, you know, everyone had to deal with Log4j. SolarWinds was huge. Um, What as, you know, since we who work at this end of the supply chain, we're the end users, right? What would you say to the rest of us? Like, what can we do about addressing supply chain risk? Well, there's a lot that can be said and done. One of the recent articles that I have read made mention that in the US, despite the fact that SBOM, Software Bill of Materials, has been mandated early last year, but that didn't ex- actually help in the log- case of Log4j. So I think there's still a fair bit of ironing out the kinks along the way. And definitely public-private partnership is essential to come up with more palatable, pragmatic and effective controls that really address supply chain attacks. Right. So there's a lot of things going on in this space. The governments are coming out with more regulations, whether it's the US or the UK. Even in Singapore itself, we are having a licensing scheme for penetration testing service providers as well as managed SOC service providers. So that's just the beginning, right? So over time, there's going to be more and more scrutiny and leveling up of the supply chain itself. I was sharing about the Singapore regulations. We also have the cybersecurity labeling scheme right, for IoT devices. As we move towards supply chain 4.0, that is supply chain on, on top of industrialization 4.0. So we use a lot more cloud, a lot more industrial internet of things, sensors and so forth. So it becomes very important to make sure that many of these equipment are at least 
secure by design upfront, right? And with the eroding parameters, with what COVID has shown us, that the fact that zero trust and it has to be put in place, right, to be able to manage the increased attack surface while keeping the business going. Because businesses really need to stay ahead of its competitors through digital transformation and, and whatever or everything or anything 4.0, right? And it's inevitable that um, attack services will increase alongside the growing adoption of, say, IT, OT convergence, OT and cloud. And uh, so when we look at risk itself, we have to look at it in totality. There is no 100% security. If you ask any of the cybersecurity professionals out there, they will tell you that as a fact. So it is about optimizing risk for businesses. As a business, we need to take risk. The only way to be 100% secure is not to run a business. That's right. So we used yeah. to say the only way to the only way to really achieve total security is to turn it off, right? It brings to mind something as you talk about it. You know, every year we get new buzzwords. There's new hot and interesting subject matter, and as we all know, it changes the attack surface, right? But what I've come to realize as we move on is, you know, as as for as long as Harangi has been around, and we've been around since 2016, yeah. we're quite young. We've always assumed the stance that you're just going to have to assume that a breach will happen, right? So we focus more on fast response and fast recovery, right? Which was the buzzword back then, right? Resilience. Resilience was the buzzword. And then we've gotten all these new, you know, ITOT convergence, all this other stuff that changes the attack surface. But from my perspective, it hasn't changed the game. The game is still resilience. And like you said, we can't anticipate all the risks the changes in risk to the supply chain. But we have to add supply chain risk to our BCP. We right. have to add it to our IR exercises. We have to practice and see, okay, once we understand, once we get notification of a supply chain risk or something that's within our systems, how do we respond? How do we recover mm-hmm. from that? Because it's all mm-hmm. about resilience. It's all about maintaining, like you said, running the business while having to deal with the supply chain risk, changing attack surface attacks as well. So I think we really have to step through the whole NIST pillars. Yes, there's a lot of focus on detect, respond, and recovery as we focus a lot more on uh, assume breach. In fact, some folks have actually forgotten that assume breach is actually part of zero trust. So yes. we don't trust even our own networks. We don't trust our suppliers. So we are assuming that they are breached. And uh, assuming breach means that we need to constantly perform com- compromise assessments, continuous threat hunting, relying on threat intelligence, and being able to save for any likelihood of attacks that especially those sophisticated attacks that have a long dwell time, be able to contain them fast, detect fast, contain fast. Yep. And not to mention uh, resilience, like what you have actually pointed out. Uh, resilience has always been the most important piece because if a breach is inevitable, it is about the business being resilient, being able to recover through its, its business continuity uh, plan. Right. So that resilience part has to be by design, right? Yeah. But having said that, the initial parts, the shift left approach is, is still important, even for some chain attack. 100%. So, yeah, so be, beyond SOC 2 reports that you attest your vendors and so forth, right? And you want to look at also some of the aspects, key aspects. Two outstanding ones that I, I feel that is very important to me is it's the disclosure of vulnerabilities mm-hmm. as well as the time to breach notification. 
So the first one, the disclosure of vulnerabilities. I, I mean, we have seen supply chain attacks that went sour, right? Because the vendor itself hasn't disclosed that zero-day vulnerability yeah. and the mitigating measures. They only disclose it only when the patch is up. By yeah. then, it was too late. So quite a number of telcos were actually breached a couple of years back because of that supply chain attack. So the need for the vendors to report vulnerabilities as they are uh, identified and being able to share compensating controls is very important for the consumer and the enterprise to be able to make that well-informed decision on what to do with it. Assess the risk. Do you want to draw a bridge or what? So that's the first point. The second point is on bridge notification. How fast the vendor tells you that there is a bridge in their environment also provides you with that capability of detect fast, respond fast, right? So right. Uh, you may want to disconnect. You want to assess whether the vendor has everything under control. You want to assess whether you need to disconnect your network completely from the vendor for the time being and mitigate lateral movement into your own networks. So yeah. those two metrics and requirements, they are important to be um, added to the terms and conditions that you dish out as, uh, alongside your tender specifications during your tendering process and put them in the contracts. That's huge. And that's something, you know, we, you know, we always have these cybersecurity conversations. Never do we really touch on third party, third party risk, contracts, procurement, right? The type of cybersecurity requirements we need to be putting into our contracts. I think those out there listening, you guys should be taking notes on that. That's a big, big piece that often gets overlooked because a lot of times what I see in a lot of my organizations is there's kind of a brick wall between your legal and your procurements teams and your security teams. So at very minimum, you know, the security team will demand that there are certain clauses in the contracts, but past that, we don't see much collaboration between those two silos, actually. So yeah. Um, a big part of a successful cybersecurity program and a successful cybersecurity organization or digital security organization is in stakeholder management. Yes, yes. Many of the CISOs, they have risen up the ranks from the technical side of things, whether they were they have been a firewall administrator or incident mm -hmm. responder, some of them work their way up the ranks. And as they step up the career ladder, uh, it becomes very important for them to be able to speak the business lingo and to be able to manage uh, stakeholders, uh, work with them, not against them, always cultivating the notion that cybersecurity is a business differentiator. That's right. Not just right. an enabler, a differentiator. If you are having products, you can be better than a competitor because 100%. you have better security in place, which is one of the reasons why ISACA has focused a lot on digital trust in recent times. And I came up with a paper on digital trust itself. Yep. Yeah. How do you establish trust with your customers, with your customers, and how you do you establish trust post incident? It's right. very important. Quite important, and that's something. And like you said, it's something because a lot of us in the cybersecurity field are highly technical, came up from technical backgrounds. A lot of us have a hard time learning that people piece because we always thought we were just going to sit here in our technology domain, but that's yeah. not the case, right? We have to learn about people and processes as well. So right, that, definitely other technologies and so forth. Like for instance, uh, we talk about zero trust when we talk about how malware spreads. We can use COVID as uh, seeing how COVID has spread 
and explaining zero trust in the form of wearing masks or using segregation, segregating folks into quarantine rooms, and these are all micro segmentation and so forth, reducing the blast rate, the attacks surface, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Use terms that they are, they are understandable. So, like I shared earlier, resilience seems to be coming back, the same old, same old. But that stepping up game is the only constant, right? I mean, it's always a cat and mouse game, right? Yeah, and there's always escalation, uh, right? Yeah. Right, right. So when automotives have been invented, nowadays, we, we, I mean, this is a common analogy that many cybersecurity folks would use, driving your car to work. None of us give it a lot of thought, right? We actually understand the risk, but the maturity of the controls that are put in place, putting on the seatbelt has become second nature, having the ABS and all those, those are security by design, right? right? That actually helps the car to move faster and by the same token, the business to be able to move more agilely with cybersecurity put in place and with autonomous vehicles coming on stream and so forth. There are new challenges and over time, the controls will mature accordingly. So similarly, supply chain risks are a pain right now, but over time, I believe we'll reach a stable state to be We're able to be second nature to our users. Okay. That's right. All right. Yeah. Well, actually, that a couple of th- a couple of times you mentioned, and it brought a question to my mind. A couple of times you mentioned zero trust, right? Zero trust architecture, right. zero trust, and everyone knows the word, and it's a really cool buzzword. But in my opinion, a large number of players in the industry are actually not yet mature in their zero trust journey. What have you seen? And you're a part of ISACA. You see many startups, SMEs. You see many enterprises. Do you see a lot of people who really have a good grasp of zero trust and are implementing it greatly in their organizations? Or do you see them more on the lower maturity levels? Or what are you seeing? Yeah, I think your spot on, on zero trust really means different things to different people. Vendors are speaking about how their products have been being able to help enterprises deploy zero trust easily and effectively. I see zero trust with different levels of maturity. And most important and foremost is the mindset and the principle behind zero trust, right? You always want to verify your assessors, the applications, the users, right? The services. And also look at the assumed breach Mm -hmm. part of what I shared earlier that is often uh, overlooked is that assumed breach portion. So I see companies and enterprises at varying levels of maturity. Some have bought into that principle. Yes, because the buzzword is there, so the board is asking about it. And the management will have to convey the message that, yes, the company is deploying zero trust. But no enterprise that I'm aware of have said that they are fully mature in their zero trust journey. They have exact TNA, a zero trust network architecture deployed everywhere and so forth, right? So it is a journey that takes time and it all starts off with that mindset. And that mindset also cuts across not just cybersecurity professionals, but also the end users, the board and everybody else on what it really means to the enterprise itself, what it really means when you connect to your supply chain. Why do you need to deploy? Why do you need to subscribe to threat intelligence? Right. Deploy threat hunting. Why do you need to perform purple teaming exercises? Right. 
All these are actually encapsulated in the whole zero trust phrase. It's just so many, there's so many moving parts and there's so many components to it and they're constantly evolving over time. It's just so hard for me to see that anybody who's really doing it at that optimizing level, you know. Right. It, it doesn't need to be very difficult, right? So for small and medium enterprises, you do not need to like replace, refresh all your switches and, and look at uh, software-defined networking, micro-segmentation and so forth. A simple approach could be simply to deploy the Windows Defender. It used to be called the Windows Firewire. Windows track Firewire. It's been, been yeah. a while, but yeah, yeah. Defender and many other names before that as well, yeah. So yeah. deploying that will actually limit the blast radius. So if you look at the attacks that have occurred previously, wiper worms like NotPetya, it took just seven minutes to encrypt 45,000 PCs and 4,000 servers in one specific company. That's fast, right? Yeah. But why did that happen? It is using SMB, Windows SMB messaging, to spread laterally. So if different systems have no business to talk to one another, even in an OT environment, the human machine interfaces of one machinery may not require communications with another human machine interface of another machinery. And they are often running on Windows. And insecure by design, Windows machines that are legacy, they are of an earlier version, Windows 7, Windows 8, and so on. Yep. So the way to protect these systems, you apply the concept of zero trust, you limit the accesses to it, you shield these vulnerable HMIs that are often, you cannot patch it as, as fast as you want because those patches will need certification by the OT vendors. And the OT vendors will take a long time. Why? Yeah. Because they want to make sure that it doesn't cause safety issues. Right. Because we talk about OT, security, safety, and availability is always the top two priorities. And as a result, you need to shield off the insecure equipment with a secure jump hose. And you would also want to limit the communications between this machinery and other machineries. So in the event you have touch wood ransomware, or wiper worm attack on one machine, the ability for that attack to laterally move to another machine is greatly mitigated because you already limit the blast radius yep. through whether it's Windows firewalls or through port security and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't mean that you need to go all the way out to purchase sophisticated solutions, right? To you just need, software networking you just need and, smart controls, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily right. need to be expensive. It doesn't need to be sophisticated. They just need to do the job. And I think that's another thing that we overlook a lot. A lot of practitioners, they throw money at the problem or they think the new cool tool is a thing, but they lose sight of the actual objective of what they're trying to do. This thing needs to operate and it needs to operate securely. Sometimes your control could just be time. Maybe it only needs access two or three times a week. Maybe you can turn it off for the rest of the week and then load make the attack surface smaller. Maybe, like you said, minimize it to the things that only need access to it. Then that certainly shrinks that attack surface. You don't need to yeah. particularly buy SDN or whatever for that one piece, right? Yeah, a lot of the issues are not with technology itself. It's actually with the people, the mindset, and yes. the process. Right? I mean, a lot of technologies I've seen implemented in many organizations, they are not fully utilized because of a simple example, I mean, I have known of firewalls, IPSs, the top-notch, right? Firewalls, yeah. IPSs. But the rule is any, any accept, right? The rule that's... Right. Why? So, 
the rushing time by it, but, yeah yeah it's but a time by it, it's just a pass through right <laughs> yeah that's it's, right and, and it's really about that conversation and ability to take ownership right uh, who is to set the rules if nobody wants to set rules even for threat hunting you need to set rules to correlate to be able to put different metrics and telemetry of different confidence levels put together and make a decision when do you want to trigger an automated containment such as from a saw right from That's a right. security uh, automated response system like Dimisto and so forth right somebody must take ownership if nobody takes ownership it becomes a white elephant yes you have the technology but it's not effectively in use and this That's happens where, a lot yeah, yeah we see it in a lot of organizations that people have stacks and stacks of technology that are a white elephant, like you said. I've never actually had it, heard anyone mention it that way, but yes, it's it becomes this, I call it a hot potato, right? Everyone passes it around. Nobody wants to hold on to it. But yes, this is a big thing in these large organizations. And I think that it speaks a lot to the cybersecurity talent gap as well. There are a lot of people that just don't have, they don't have confidence in their ability to manage these things. And that's why these things, or maybe there really just aren't anybody in the organization that can sit there and write an entire ACL or 12 of them for different subnets and stuff right? That, like that, right? There's just this big gap of, of talent. How do you see that affecting the organizations that you work with? Yeah, so talent is multifaceted. It comes whether you're talking about uh, the qualifications or the experience. So yes. In terms of, I'll talk about the latter first. So for, in terms of experience, I think it's very important to be aware and participate in ecosystem initiatives. So the reason why I joined ISACA Singapore chapter, mm-hmm. um, eight, nine years, the board eight, nine years ago. And prior to that, I have been a member of ISACA for 19 years. Wow. Yeah. Years already because you can share best practices, share best practices when, when I know what works and what doesn't. And there are Chatham House rules. And it's not just ISACA for OTI sites, Information Sharing Analysis Center. In fact, any ISAC out there, they would yeah. have a safe harbor protocol that f- facilitates the sharing of best practices safely, non attributable, as well as a sharing of incidents and what you have learned from incidents, again, in a non attributable manner. And everybody can learn from that. And that is the way the cybersecurity industry is looking at right now. The ability to um, defend. Yeah. And we use these terms called defend forward. Beyond assume breach is defend forward as well as hunt forward. And what it means is to tip the scales of asymmetry. Mm -hmm. Uh, We always say the hackers just need to find one hole in the fence. Yep. Whereas and, and make sure everything is secure and what you have not. So we are the losing end. But we have to consider the fact that the hackers, they have to design and come up with tools and tactics. Right? Every time they come up with a new tactic, every time they come up with a new technique, and they attack a specific enterprise. Mm-hmm. If the enterprise is part of the community, such as and so forth, and share this tactic and technique with the rest of the ecosystem, what happens is through the ISAC, everybody will level up their protection capability against this specific tactic and technique. And what results is that this specific attack and technique is rendered useless against anyone else in the world. Yep. And therefore, the attacker will have to come up with another new technique or tactic. 
And that's precisely the notion of, partly the notion of defend forward as well as hunt forward. Right? Yep. And be able it's to kind of attacking the their wallets, right? Because it becomes costly <laughs> for them to keep going. Right? right. That's right. So that is on the experience part of things. In terms of qualifications, there's no lack of certifications out there. I got certifications. And there are also conversion programs. So, for instance, at the Isaac Singapore chapter, we have a Shilits Tech conversion program. They help converts uh, even housewives, right? And give them opportunities and place them into internship programs with our partnering companies to be able to learn as well as having the opportunity to intern and showcase their capabilities with an organization which they can potentially be a permanent employee of in future. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so looking extensively into diversity becomes very important. And that diversity is not just focusing on gender. We are also increasingly exploring neurodiversity. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent uh, analysts out there. Yeah. Fantastic. Backgrounds. Beyond that, what COVID has taught us is also that uh, you do not need a headcount to be physically present in all your premises to be able to work. So, Remote working has become a reality. For instance, I have colleagues who are working in Poland. Yeah. Yeah. All same. Uh, yeah, same. Uh, Not Poland, but I mean all over the world. We have colleagues yeah, uh, all, all over the world. We become a distributed workforce. Right. But having said that, retention is also important. It's not just about upskilling, cross-skilling, as well as uh, training staff and finding sources of best sourcing and outsourcing. But it's also about the ability to retain staff. So rotating staff so that they are not facing fatigue. If mm-hmm. they are sort of ace, you should try to rotate them to do other kind of work, such as maybe become a red team, do BAPT red teaming exercises, right? Yeah. To make it interesting for them. And and very importantly, one of the most important uh, aspects of retaining staff is to ensure that your staff finds purpose in their role yes. in the organization. So that through that purpose, uh, they will not be swayed by another better pay somewhere else and put, just put because them along. Because somebody they, always has more money, right? You can't really retain yeah. staff for money. But I right. think you're right. What they're looking for is purpose. They're looking for impact, right? Yep. They want to know that the fruits of their labor are going to something greater than themselves. And yeah. I think in the past, a lot of uh, SOCs, MSSPs, a lot of these right. organizations that have a lot of these cybersecurity professionals, they did not really do that part well. And that's why there's, there used to be like when I started out in cybersecurity in the 2000s, it was unheard of for you to stay in one company for longer than two years. You mm-hmm. would just jump just to get a change of your day, get a raise. But nowadays we're starting to understand better that, you know what, if you can tell your teammates and your coworkers, like, look, this is what all of our work goes towards. You know, you, if you, if, you know, because they used to say, okay, if I do a really good day and I do a lot of work or I do a bad day and I do less work, it's the same day for me. It doesn't change. This is what adds to that fatigue. It adds to that just feeling of not being fulfilled in your job, right? Yeah, indeed. Culture is absolutely important. 100%. Yeah. Having that risk-based culture. Yeah. yeah. And being able to have risk ownership driven top down, that's important. If nobody owns the risk, it becomes a very hard uh, journey. Right? Yes. Everybody pushing the, like what you mentioned earlier, hot potatoes, right? Yeah. Everybody bring the hot potato and nobody wants to own the risk. 
So having that risk framework, the right risk framework in place is important. So ISACA has a risk IT framework that talks about risk ownership, who is accountable, who is responsible at the various levels. Mm. So when a RACI is clear, who is responsible, accountable, consulted, informed, and some of the enterprises like my own ad, uh, additional column cost support, it really helps to move things forward. You don't end up with meetings after meetings, just finger pointing and deliberating who should be doing it a certain right. Progress At least the race is quite clear. Like there's no, there doesn't right. have any passing or point finger pointing. It says right, right here and in the it, matrix, right? Right. And then you move beyond that and really reap benefits for the business and the ability to optimize risk, knowing that you are not here to do overdo cybersecurity as well. You are mm -hmm. here as a business enabler. That's right. As well as a leader for the business. Yeah. And this, that's another thing I like to tell my teammates, right? It's not our job, our objective, our job here is not it's actually not to secure the organization. It's to make sure the organization meets its objective securely, right? Absolutely um, right. Yeah, yeah. It's about meeting that risk appetite. So yes. I sometimes I have to play the virtual uh, CISO role for a number of SMEs. Mm -hmm. and, and one commonality I found from these discussions is that many times they don't have the risk register, enterprise risk uh, uh, formulated out. I yeah. see the same thing, yes. That's yeah, that is the goalpost that you have to set in place first. Right. And understanding the enterprise risk appetite and tolerance would help the risk teams, the cyber teams, define the right level of controls to be able mm -hmm. to meet that appetite. Yeah. And then meet that appetite. Not too much, not overdo it, but and also not, not uh, doing too little of it. And really, effectiveness is not about how secure you are. It's about your ability to aligned with the enterprise research. That's that right. Yeah. That's right. And actually, I'll take it even further because I do the same thing. I act as a virtual CISO for a lot of organizations. The risk register is missing. But not just that. There's the asset register. The asset management is missing. And also the data mapping is missing. So you don't know how your data flows through your organization. You don't know what your assets or what your crown jewels are at all. And then you don't even know what your risk is, but you want a pen test right now. Like you want a pen test. Like... I think it's because a lot of people don't find that to be the cool stuff of cybersecurity. So they kind of mm -hmm. just glaze over it and they go straight to, everyone wants to do a pen test. Everybody wants to do a red team. Stuff, um, right? We have to yeah. tell people that blue teams are sexy. So blue is a sexy color. It's sure. not just red. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> blue is also sexy. Yes. You know, no, most definitely. Most definitely. I think that's, I see a lot of that as well. And you're right. I think it, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks just like yourself who are super experienced, seen a lot of organizations, you guys seen it all. And it always comes back to doing the fundamentals right, right? Like I say, often to my clients, you want to rush out there and you want to buy a pen test, a red team, you want to buy a million dollar firewall, but most of your cybersecurity can get done with a piece of paper and a pen. What, what are my assets? What's my data? How does it flow and what's the risk? A lot of these things can be written down with a piece of paper and a pencil. Yeah. And you'll do most of your journey, your beginning journey there, actually. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think being able to track model and perform a business impact assessment upfront and determining where you are in that uh, risk matrix is absolutely important and how you manage that risk itself. It's always a risk conversation rather yes. than a security conversation. Yes, 100%. Because at the end of the day, actually, all of us are actually just risk managers. 
We're actually getting towards the end of our time. I had a lot of OT ISAC questions and ISAC questions for you lined up, but I got kind of lost in the conversation. I think what this means is we got to have you on again if you're down for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah, it's a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I there's a lot, lot more we can talk about. I think there's a lot. Uh, we've went everywhere from CII to, you know, to red teaming to the skills gap to everything. We've been across the board. If there was one thing you wanted to leave all of our viewers with and our listeners with today, what's the big message today for you to let everyone know? I would say that what we have discussed in the last 10, 20 minutes or so is, is very important to look at the business from a business perspective. Think about the business from the ability to optimize the business risk, right? Yeah. And focus on the fundamentals. And it is not just about um, secure by design. Secure by design is good, but it gives the notion that it seems to be one-off. And we have seen how many of the Amazon cloud buckets became leaky and so forth. Yeah. Security is a continuous journey. So we need to look at uh, security by deployment as well as uh, resilience by design as well. So, yes. uh, yeah. So the eventuality of a bridge, the ability to bounce back up be able to contain, uh, detect fast, contain fast, and recover fast. So uh, business community planning based on your business impact and assessment, uh, having come up with the right business community plans is absolutely important. Uh, and in the uh, risk governance process, please do not look at cyber insurance as a panacea, right? It yeah. has never been, and insurance has been always been very difficult. Yeah, you cannot yes. base on past incidents to determine why it's a premium and so forth. It's a very volatile market. And if there's anything to go by, the hackers have been interviewed, right? I think it's the gang has been interviewed and so forth. And they have shared that they will target a clientele of insurance companies, cyber yeah. insurance companies. Why? Because payouts they are pay. guaranteed. Yeah, yeah they they pay. Yeah. I remember when one of the big insurance companies decided not to pay because they, they feel that they are being seen as a betting mm-hmm. uh, terrorism. The hackers went after the insurance companies and ransomware them. <laughs> That's right. So ultimately, like what you have referred to, going back to that, those fundamentals, making sure you look at the NIST framework or any other framework such as COVID and step through that governance step by step and look at elevating your maturity over time to meet the risk of the time. Most definitely. Just Steven Sim, ladies and gentlemen, just dropping the knowledge, guys. You should take all of that to heart. Those are all 100% on the point. It's been such a pleasure having you, Steven. We hope to have you again if you'd be so gracious to lend us some more time. We would love to have you. Sure, that was a very enjoyable conversation. Look forward to having the next one with you. Yeah, awesome. That's great. So yeah, for all of you out there, there's been another episode of Ask a CISO. We'll see you on the next one. 